You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The problem is in the context of these kinds of emails, where there isn't much of a visual indication, it is very difficult to expect a user to perfectly discern whether it's a forgery or not. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me, as always, is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Good morning, Dave. As always, we've got some interesting stories to share, and later in the show, we speak with David Baggett from Inky, and we'll be discussing phishing and other social engineering techniques. Techniques. And we are back, Joe. We've got uh, midterm elections coming up, and I think people are understandably concerned about election hacking. We have a recent story that came by from The Intercept, written by Sam Biddle. And the folks at The Intercept used the Freedom of Information Act to obtain a copy of one of the emails that was used by the Russians to try to access U.S. voting machines. Huh. And this is according to NSA that these are some of the emails that they used. So there's a company in Florida called VR Elections. Right. They're a provider of voting machines. So there was an email sent out to states around the U.S. who use these machines. I'm already getting angry, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) Getting wound up, huh? Right. (laughs) Okay. This was from VR Systems, Inc. The email address was vrelections at gmail.com. Because if you're a major provider of election systems, why have your own domain system? Right. Right. Just (laughs) just use Gmail. It's free. (laughs) Right. Exactly. And the subject was new user guides. And the email is pretty straightforward forward, very basic. It's got the VR elections logo. And it says, Dear customers, please take a look at the instructions for our modernized products. Best regards, VR Systems, Inc. And it had an attachment, which, of course, the attachment was an office document. Uh, Was it a malicious office document? It was indeed. (laughs) It was a... uh, Didn't see that coming. No, it was a docm file extension, which automatically executes code when you open it. Of course, the the actual VR election system sent out a a follow-up to this when they heard that this was going on, telling their customers, please do not open the attachment. As far as they know, they're not aware of any customers actually having opened it. They said the because of the simplicity of this phishing attempt, it's likely that most people's spam filters and, and so on would have caught it. Right. And so they don't know of any specific incidences where they were successful with this. But what strikes me about this, obviously, we talked about the Gmail account, but also I think this is a great example of how less is more. Right. It's very short and to the point. All business. Just has a link. Yep. So it appears as though what they were after here was trying to get on the computers of state voting officials. Mm -hmm. Okay. So sort of coming at it from the top, I suppose. And those state voting officials would have access to all sorts of information about the voter rolls and passwords and things like that. Right. And once maybe they get in the network, they can actually compromise the physical voting machines. Right. I have been a very loud opponent of electronic voting machines Mm. and of online voting. Actually, I'm very happy with the Maryland system that we have here. It is a paper ballot that you fill out 
And then that paper ballot is counted electronically. If you remember the old Scantron tests, it's very similar to that. And your ballot goes into a ballot box. And for a number of years here, we had these dipole systems, mm-hmm. which there was no paper ballot. You had an electronic ballot and that was it. And I've told this story on, on this podcast a couple of times. How one time an election official looked at the little piece of paper that gets printed out, which has all your information on it, including your party. Right. And he sent me to a machine that he wasn't sending other people to. Now, hmm. does that mean that he is crooked? No, it doesn't mean that. But it was odd that he didn't send anyone to that machine beforehand and he didn't send anybody to that machine afterwards. And it, for all I know, they could have been just not using that machine and counting it because each one of those machines was essentially its own ballot box. Right. Plus, They were notoriously bad at at their security on those things. There were a number of hacks that came out about those Diebold machines. If somebody had the smart card for, I think, 30 seconds, they could compromise the machine. One of our professors, Avi Rubin, wrote a book called Brave New Ballot, which is all about this kind of stuff. And I think he was instrumental in the new ballot system that we have here. I mean, it's a pretty straightforward phishing attempt here. Right, right. Nothing sophisticated about it, and it seems as though it would likely would have gotten caught. But I think in the context of where we are right now, where people are sort of at uh, heightened alert when it comes to these sorts of things, it's interesting to see, like we've talked about, even nation states, they start off with the easy stuff. Right. Absolutely. They're going to start off with the social engineering because that's going to be the easiest way to get into an organization. Yeah. And it it just works. The title of the article is, Here's the Email Russian Hackers Used to Try to Break into State Voting Systems. Again, the author is Sam Biddle, so uh, check that out. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Joe, what do you have for us this week? I have something very similar, actually. This one comes from Krebs on Security, and it's another story about state and local governments receiving a phishing attack, but it's an actual physical mail. Several state and local government agencies have reported that they've received strange letters via stale mail that include a malware-laden CD. Hmm. It was apparently sent from China because it arrives in an envelope with a Chinese postmark on it. It's a very basic scam, but it preys on people who are curious to see what's on the CD. So you get a package in the mail. Right. From China. Uh-huh. There's a CD in there. And a letter. And a letter. Right. And it's poorly worded and has some Chinese characters in it, and it contains the CD. And Krebs got a hold of an alert from the MSISAC, which is the Multi-State Information Sharing and Analysis Center. Mm -hmm. I'm very glad to see that this exists. I didn't know this exists. All 50 states are members. Mm -hmm. So that's good. Kudos to all 50 of our states. (laughs) But the preliminary analysis of the CD shows that it's got some Word files on it. And guess what? These Word files are also malicious. It's a very similar method of attack to the story that you shared. However, it's arriving in a physical package and with a CD. Yeah, that's interesting that, first of all, how many computers still have CD drives? That's an excellent question. Could that be part of the targeting that, you know, a government agency is likely to have an older system that right. may still have exactly. a CD that's, drive built that's in? That's exactly where I was about to go with that, is that these computers are very old at these government agencies because they might not have the tax revenue to support updating their systems on a regular basis. Right. And if it works and it's sufficient, then why replace it? Here's a good reason, uh, because it's more secure if you get a new system. Yeah, it's so hard for me to imagine someone receiving all of this and putting it in the computer. I suppose, you know, curiosity killed the cat, right? Yep. So what's on this CD? What harm could there be? 
if I get a CD in the mail with a poorly worded letter and Chinese characters in it, that's just going right in the trash. I mean, <laughs> maybe I'll hold it to put it into a, a malware analysis lab. Maybe we should take a look at this. But I am certainly not putting that on any machine that isn't just disposable. Yeah, but it's interesting that they go to the expense and trouble of it's more expensive than sending out emails. It is. And they've sent it to a number of people. They've sent it to some state archives organizations, some historical societies, some cultural affairs offices. And the letters are specifically addressed to them. So they're going through the publicly available information and sending these people snail mail. Krebs has a, a few rules of Internet security. He reminds everybody about the first rule that if you didn't go looking for it, don't install it. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> that's a great rule. That's a great way to say it. If you didn't go looking for it, don't install it. Yeah. I guess it's a bit of a head scratcher, but you know, maybe they're just testing the waters to see, could this possibly be an effective avenue to go after folks who may be in situations where they have older machines? Right. The story that Krebs has written here says that it's not clear if anybody has installed this software, mm -hmm. right? We put this thing in and looked at it. If I had to guess, I'll bet somebody did it. It's always a numbers game, right? Yep. Time to move on to our catch of the day. <laughs> Joe, what do we have this week? So we have an email that was sent to us from Georgetown University, mm -hmm. and it's a phishing attack focused on the GU faculty. Okay. The first dead giveaway here is that it comes from GU-HR, and their email address is sossosjose at gmail.com. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, maybe there's a guy over in Georgetown HR named Jose. Could be. And maybe everybody knows... Jose, and they know that he is in charge of these kind of things. But the email has a very official looking seal on it. And it says Georgetown University, probably just copied directly from their webpage and then inserted into this email. Right. And here's how it reads. Hello, sequel to last week's notification. Finding closed here under the letter summarizing your 14.89% salary increase starting June 2018. In red letters, for authentication purpose, ensure your login information are correctly entered. All documents are enclosed here under. And then in the blue link, it says access documents here. And then back to black text, it says employee relations and payroll department, Georgetown University. Hmm. So it's an email and the bait on the hook is greed, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, we're going to find out that we just got a big raise. I mean, that is a significant raise, 14 Eight nine percent. It's a very precise number. Right. I work at a university and have never gotten a pay raise in that amount. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. If I saw this come through from Hopkins, I'd be initially very excited, but then I'd I'd be like, wait a minute, this hasn't happened before. Hopefully, I do this way. You know, I say this <laughs> right, sitting right, here as I'm, right. as I'm thinking about it, inoculating myself to this kind of attack. Uh huh. Admit it, Joe. You you're already spending the money. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I'm finally getting that Tesla. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So pretty straightforward here. Again, short and sweet, but playing on greed. Right. And it's obvious to get your login information. Sure. It's just, it's just a way you. to steal your credentials. Yep. Attackers go after universities frequently because that's where a lot of cutting edge research is done. Yeah, so it's it's not just going after uh, you know your typical financial things. There's actually intellectual. Yeah, that's usually what, the, what these things are going after is the intellectual property and the research. They want to get in and get and find out about papers before they're released and just get a jump on things. That is our catch of the day. Coming up next, we've got an interview with David Baggett. He's from Inky.
And we are back. Joe, I recently spoke with David Baggett. He is the founder and CEO of Inky. They're a company that uses artificial intelligence, machine learning, and computer vision technology to fight phishing attacks. Hmm. Here's my conversation with David Baggett. When it comes to people being fooled by email, where do we find ourselves today? Right now, the number one cybersecurity vector. So by vector, I mean way people get into your system, way people convince you to wire money, way people get identity theft to happen. So it's a huge, huge problem, and it's completely rampant. And just one stat I can share is the FBI does a report on this every year. And the last report, I think they said it's a billion and a half dollars of wire fraud caused by various kinds of email scams per year. And that's, if you think about it, that's what's been reported. So there's probably a lot more that hasn't been reported. So it's a massive, massive problem still. Why is this such an effective vector? Well, there's a bunch of reasons. I mean, one reason is that it's very easy and very cheap, ultimately zero cost, to send lots of emails. So the transport mechanism of email is very appealing to attackers because it's cheap. The other reason it's appealing is because email is a really old standard, right? So email has been around since 1971. And if you think about email in terms of the timeline, HTML is a new, exciting feature in the history of email, right? So HTML mail came around the 90s. Hmm. Before that, you couldn't even send HTML or text or graphics in emails at all. And so that sort of gives you a sense of how old it is. And one of the problems is when you have an old protocol like that, it was designed before security was a consideration at all. And so it's very easy to make a mail look like it's from somebody else. And for example, I can send you a mail that says it's from president at whitehouse.gov. I can put anything I want in the from line. And that's because there's no authentication of mail built into the standard. And so it's appealing to attackers because it's easy, it's cheap, it's pretty much devoid of any security mechanisms. Now, of course, we've retrofitted some security mechanisms onto email uh, over the last decade or so. It's still pretty easy to exploit, though. And of course, if you can convince somebody to wire a bunch of money, you only need to get one of those emails to work for it to be profitable. So it really is a, a, a numbers game and, and taking advantage of human nature. Absolutely. And the thing is, too, the time when you're the most harried and busy is probably when you're going through your inbox, right? Because everyone's getting bombarded by 800 messages a day. So people know that you're not giving your full attention to your inbox. It's just impossible to do it. And so it's a, it's a point of vulnerability for the human recipients which is one reason why we focused on trying to make the machines able to recognize fraudulent mails and block them before they get to the humans. Can you take us through the, the spectrum of the kinds of things you see? Is, is there such a thing as a typical phishing attack? And what is the most effective? What usually gets through? Yeah, there's a few different types. I mean, and they, they tend to vary based on the targets. So some targets are consumers and some targets are companies. In the consumer category, we see a lot of things that are fake Amazon gift cards or take this survey and get $50 of Amazon. And as a public service announcement, anything like that you get is not real. <laughs> no one ever gives you $50 to take a survey ever. And their goal there, the attacker's goal is often credential harvesting. So they're trying to get you to log into the fake Amazon site, which captures your password, you know, because once you've realized it's not Amazon, you already have typed in your password. And I talked to an FBI agent about this because I was sort of asking her, well, why do people want Amazon account passwords? There's some reasons why you might imagine that. But she said, oh, they don't just want your Amazon password. They know most people use the same password on every site. So that also may get them into their bank or may get them into their email account. And then they have access to an email account from which they can send phishing mails. So that's a really common one. You know, we call it a brand forgery where the mail appears to be from a well-known trusted brand. 
it has all the visual indicators that look perfect for that brand, but it's really from the attacker. And that's usually, again, to get credentials, somebody's password or other credentials. When companies are targeted, the targeting is a little different. There, it's often things like trying to get someone in the company to wire money or pay a fake invoice or send a bunch of W-2s out for identity theft. So it's often more targeted. And in fact, those are really insidious because the recipient receives a mail. They think it's from their CFO. The mail says, I'm going to be out this afternoon. Make sure this wire goes through. And the person assumes it's really their CFO because that person's name is in the from line. It looks like something. And a lot of times the attackers will go on social media and study the CFO's profile. So they'll include little tidbits like, I'll be at the beach with Sally and the kids, right? And actually say something that will resonate with the recipient to make them believe it really is that person. So a lot of that is more what we call spear phishing, where they're targeting a specific individual and their objective is wire fraud, identity theft. Sometimes it'll be to get malware installed. So for example, you get a message that appears to be from the CEO saying, hey, can you review the results in the spreadsheet? You open the spreadsheet and all of a sudden it's installed malware on your on your network. So that's another kind of attack. Those are really, I guess, the broad strokes of these scams. Now, in terms of the service providers, how good a job are they doing of protecting us against these sort of things? If I have a Gmail account or a Microsoft account or you know one of those big providers, are they effective at filtering? Well, they're not great. And here's the problem. So Mail protection really has been around, obviously, for 20 plus years, and it kind of evolved out of spam filtering, right? So we all know, I'm sure we all get some spam, but it's mostly a solved problem. And about 15 years ago, people developed some simple algorithms that allowed them to filter out spam. And really, the mail protection systems that all the mail providers run are based on these original spam filtering models. And the problem is that that doesn't work very well for phishing. And there's a couple of reasons. You know, one is that the smart attackers are actually trying to fool two different entities. They're trying to fool the recipient, who's a person, into believing, wow, that really is a mail from Bank of America. So trying to make it look really convincing to the human recipient. But simultaneously, they're trying to fool the mail protection software. And they'll do all kinds of things to cloak the true intention of the mail from the simple mail protection software that's sort of built on the spam filtering paradigm. So they'll do things like, Instead of putting the word Bank of America in the subject or the from line, they'll put a Greek letter alpha in place of the lowercase a's. So it doesn't actually say Bank of America anymore. It says B alpha NK. And that's to hide from the mail protection software because that software may be looking for the brand terms. So they've sort of hidden the brand term from the mail protection software. But to the human, it just looks like the font is kind of funny. So the human doesn't see it any differently, and the mail protection software is fooled. And so it's really, really insidious because they've sort of developed countermeasures against the spam filtering model. Another thing they'll do is they want the mail to look like it's a conversational mail, not a transactional mail. So they'll stuff a bunch of words, literally from things like Yelp reviews, into the body of the mail, but they'll make the text white on white. So the human recipient doesn't see anything except white space. But the mail protection software is going to see all these words that look like narrative, English narrative. Mm. And that tends to induce the spam filtering models to say, okay, well, it must be a conversation between two people. 
it's really tough to, to, to get these right. And I would say the state of the art prior to what we've been working on at Inky is there's sort of a whack-a-mole approach of if I see a URL that points to a phishing site, I can report that. And then there are various threat feeds that you can subscribe to and all the major mail providers do that basically are just giant lists of URLs that, that are bad. And then if they if so, if the mail provider sees a bad URL in a mail, they can block that mail. The problem is, you know, obviously someone has to report the URL in the first place. And until it's reported, everyone's going to be victimized by it. The other problem is not all these mails even have URLs because some of them, like a spear phishing mail, might just say, why are money here? And then finally, again, using a technique from spammers, the smarter attackers will send everybody a different URL. So they'll put a little code in the URL that makes it unique. So you get a different URL than I do, and the fact that you reported your URL doesn't help me. So there's a whole problem with what we call zero-day phishing attacks where nobody's ever reported them. They look really convincing. They don't have a lot of the traditional signals that a spam filtering model would look for. What is your philosophy when it comes to how organizations should treat their users. You hear it bandied around a lot where people will say, well, if, if this would be an easy job if it weren't for the users or, you know, you want to shame the users or, you know, that <laughs> right. sort of thing. I mean, is that helpful? What's your take on that? Yeah, I feel like there's a certain, if not pervasive, a common psychology here, which is, you know, my job as an IT professional would be a lot easier if it weren't for these stupid users. <laughs> and I think, I think there's a comforting psychological component to that. But obviously, you know, it doesn't really help the users much if, if your view of them is just that they're too stupid. On the other hand, I do think, you know, there have been a number of companies like CoFence is one of them, know before. These companies have made a tremendous amount of not just money, but also improved the security posture of many, many companies through purely simulated phishing training. And so it's not that we believe those things aren't useful. They are. It's just we believe that you should really be blocking as much as possible with software before it gets to the end users. So you don't have to rely on the users being trained and not making mistakes. Right. So I do think that the narrative of stupid users is unhelpful. But at the same time, I think it is useful to try to teach people, hey, look for these obvious signs of forgery or phishing. Now, ultimately, the problem is the attackers aren't stupid. They know everyone's running phishing awareness training now, and so they're developing techniques to get past these trained users. In other words, they make the phishing mails look exactly like the real mails. And one of the insights that I had a while ago, but it was really after I'd been working on this problem for quite some time, sort of embarrassing. It took me a long time to realize this, but it's obvious in retrospect. Let's say you're an attacker and you're lazy and you want to send a mail that looks exactly like a Bank of America mail. What do you do? But what you do is you take a real Bank of America mail, save as HTML, and resend that. <laughs> and of course, right. it's going to look exactly like a Bank of America mail because it is. It's the same HTML, right? Right, right. And you also didn't have to do any work. You didn't have to make a new logo or anything. You just resend something you already got. So the problem is in the context of these kinds of emails where there isn't much of a visual indication, it is very difficult to expect a user to perfectly discern whether it's a forgery or not. And one of the nice things is the software, on the other hand, is able to prove using cryptography whether that mail really is from Bank of America or not. So that actually the software has an advantage over the human in determining the veracity of the mail. So lots to unpack there, Joe. Really uh, interesting to see how they're coming at this phishing problem using technology. Right. You know, email is still the number one vector 
and it's still the number one vector because it's cheap, easy, and old. Mm. Old, I think, is the key. And when we started slapping HTML on top of email, <laughs> I, I didn't think that was a good idea. And actually, I say this frequently. One of the easiest things to do in, in a security position is to say, that's going to end badly and then wait for it to end badly. <laughs> right. and, and, and look at me. I was right. I'm like Nostradamus yeah, over here. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> but it's it's pretty easy to do that. But, you know, and this was back even before I was in security, actually, even before I was in this tech field, a friend of mine sent me an email that looked like it came from the White House. And it was remarkable. This is before, like I said before, this is back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Very easy to spoof it. Everything Dave is saying here is completely correct, particularly about when he talks about people being harried and under the gun, yeah. looking through their inboxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. DeBurra and Dr. Lee, who are faculty at ISI, at the Information Security Institute, published a paper this year on spam filtering by humans. And they hmm. found that multitasking has a negative effect on a user's ability to correctly classify emails. And the paper's been published, and we're going to put a link in the show notes, right? Yeah. So uh, everybody can take a look at that. But when you're doing your email, when you're working with your email, take the time to to dedicate some time to it and just pay attention to it. Don't, you know, especially if someone's asking for some some information or it's time to click on links. Spend the time to focus on your task at hand. Yeah, that's an interesting thing because I think there are some people who – Set aside time to focus on going through their emails. Right. And I think other people are kind of address them as they come in. Yes. On, I, the, fl- on the fly. I do not do that. I can't. I find that there's a great exercise. I'm not going to go into it here, but it just it turns out that multitasking is just a terrible way to do your job. Mm. Whenever I talk to people about it, I say you don't want multitaskers. What you want is people who are able to switch from one task to the next with relative ease. That's not multitasking. Multitasking mm-hmm. is a bad idea all around. You're not devoting 100% of your attention to one task. You're trying to complete two or three tasks at once, and none of them are getting done well. Yeah, I, I find I just can't do it. I think it leads to a certain level of anxiety if I'm trying to, to keep too many things in my head at once. I, I need to, to switch and focus works better for me, but yep. that's just how – that's just me. I, I don't think it's just you. Mm. I think it's the vast majority of the human population. Yeah. One thing he said that I really thought was very clever on these attackers' part is by putting text in white on white mm-hmm. to fool spam filters. That's a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very, very clever. Yep. All right. Well, our thanks to Dave Baggett from Inky for uh, joining us. Uh, you can, of course, check them out online to learn about all the stuff they're doing to fight phishing attacks. So we thank him for joining us. And of course, we thank you for listening. And thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more about what they're up to at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technology. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our editor is John Petrick. Technical editor is Chris Russell. Executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 